are this morning continuing a sermon series that we've been in uh, throughout Lent on the cross. We've called this series uh, Christ Crucified. And what we've, do, what we've been doing is just taking this opportunity to meditate on the cross, to look at the different ways that the Bible answers the question, what happened on the cross? What was accomplished for us when Jesus died? And if you remember last week, we looked at the cross and the temple, the way that the cross fulfilled and brought together all of these themes of temple and sacrifice that we see throughout the Old Testament. And this morning, we're going to look at the cross and the courtroom. Uh, oftentimes, the biblical authors, especially the Apostle Paul, as we're going to see in Romans, uses these legal images for what happens when Jesus, the innocent one, died for us, the guilty. He uses these rich images, things like justification and righteousness, this uh, our status before God in the divine courtroom is what we're going to look at today. And remember, as we do this journey uh, through Lent, looking at the significance of the cross, these things aren't over and against one another, right? Even though some authors in some places will use some words to describe the cross instead of others, right? It's like you're taking a jewel and turning it a little bit in the light and seeing a little bit more of the facets of its beauty, the facets of what it is, that's what we're hoping to see in the cross each time we turn it and look at it from just a little bit different angle, that we would come to a deeper gratitude and a deeper sense of appreciation, that the cross would grow larger and more vital and more powerful in our lives. And so today our scripture reading will be uh, from Romans chapter 3. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. If you ever have a chance uh, to go to the Sistine Chapel uh, in Rome, in, in the Vatican, it's one of these, you know, kind of, you learn about it in school, it's one of the kind of high points of Western art. Michelangelo painted the beautiful picture on the, on the ceiling, you see the uh, the image that you often see of God reaching out and touching Adam's finger. But then down at one end of the Sistine Chapel, this most beautiful building, 
On one end stands another work of Michelangelo's that he painted at the, uh, in the chapel of the Last Judgment. And there, uh, it's, a, it's a stunning work in its scale, its beauty. But there you have Jesus in the center, in the clouds, and then ascending and descending on either side of him and all around him are the souls and bodies of those coming to judgment. You have people going up uh, to their eternal reward and those going down to judgment. And a number of things stand out to you when you see this painting. One of the first that stands out to us with kind of modern eyes and modern sensibilities is that everybody in the painting is nude, uh, except for Jesus. Um, but that everybody's nude. Actually, later authors or uh, artists came in after when people became a little more prudish. They came in and covered up a lot of the figures, uh, trying to cover up some of Michelangelo's work. But what Michelangelo was trying to communicate in their nudity wasn't just nudity for nudity's sake, but this idea that all people stand vulnerable before God, stripped bare, right? They're stripped of their rank, their items of privilege or class or employment. Everybody just is as they are before God. And so here's this image right behind the altar, right at the, the, the head of the chapel, this image of the last judgment. Another thing that stands out when you consider it uh, is that there was ever a time in which people were comfortable enough with the idea of God's judgment that they would want to be reminded of it, that they would want to even uh, contemplate it or even celebrate it in worship, that behind uh, the altar where they'd be looking in worship, that they chose not to place uh, some happier image, right, of Jesus' life or something like that, but they put this image of the last judgment, that it was actually some type of hope and comfort to them, some type of way of keeping their life in perspective eternally, right? Such is uh, certainly not the case now, right? If we think of our culture, uh, to the extent that we're even capable of having a common conversation about what God is like, in our world, one thing that almost everybody can agree on is that if there is a God, that he's accepting of everybody, right? That he's entirely loving, that he's entirely accepting, and that a God, if there is one, uh, certainly wouldn't be the kind of God who judges, the kind of God who holds people to account, the kind of God who does things like rewards and punishments, right? Such a God like that surely belongs to some, you know, backwoods, antiquated era before they attained our level of enlightenment. And yet, throughout most of our history, uh, God's people from Israel on through the church has viewed the judgment of God as a crucially important piece of the love of God, right? This language uh, that Paul uses here of the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, picks up on this rich Old Testament theme that the righteousness of God means that one day God is powerful enough to act and he's just enough to act. And one day he will set everything right in an evil world. Right? If you think about it, there's nothing. Is there anything more hopeless than being in a world as messy as ours is without anyone having the moral ability or the power to set it right? Right? But because God is loving, he will one day set everything right. The prophet Isaiah puts it this way. In Isaiah 3, he says, The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who've devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. 
So the rich, the poor, the Israelites, the Gentiles, all people would come into God's judgment. That's a piece of what God's righteousness means. And this obviously for the people of Israel was both hopeful, it was good news that God would punish evil and set this broken world right through his judgment, but also bad news, right? Because if God is going to judge, if God's going to set things right, what about me? Right? What about the evil in my own heart? What about my own wickedness, my own unrighteousness? Right? We all have to figure out a way to stand before a righteous God. We have to figure out a way to stand before God's righteous judgment. And that's what Paul is about in this passage. That's what Paul is up to as he enters into talking about God's righteousness. There's one word uh, that gets lost in the English. It's the Greek word, or the Greek root word, dikaio. It's what's at the root of the word righteousness and justice and just and justification. They're all cognates of this one word, and that word in its, its various forms comes up nine times in this passage alone. What Paul is talking about is the way that a righteous God can deal righteously in the world in order to rectify, in order to make right, make just, the lives of people whose lives are bent and crooked in the life of this entire world. How will we be made righteous before God? You know, I think we all know intuitively, I think we all live in such a way that we know that we are in judgment. You know, if you look out, uh, to, to use Paul's language here, that we all understand that at the end of the day, we need a righteousness. We need some way to stand before God and others and to say, look, I'm a, I'm a good person. Right? Look, I'm worth it. I'm worth accepting. I'm worth loving. I'm innocent in a world of guilty people. I'm somehow worth acceptance. I think if you look out over humanity, all people, whether they identify as religious or not, whether they identify as, yeah, I'm trying to earn my way before a righteous God, I think all of us are driven by this way of proving to God and to others that we're righteous. I think that at the, at the core of who we are is that we're resume builders. Right? If you think about it, if you ever tried to write your resume for a job, some of you are in the midst of doing that right now. Right? What do, you, what do you do when you write a resume? Do you tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth about yourself, so help you God? Right? No. You don't write, look, I'm probably not going to be there on time. I'm terrible in the mornings. Uh, you, know, you don't put the whole truth about yourself. You put yourself in the best possible light you can. Right? I held these degrees and these jobs, and these are my best references. Right? You don't... You, don't leave, you leave off the boss that you worked for for three months and he left and you haven't talked since, right? You put all the, your, your best foot forward, right? And I think that we're all resume builders, not just when we're formally applying to a job, but we, we take this resume with us. Look, look at, look at how good I'm doing. Look at how good I do at my job. Look at how good I am to my friends. Look at how upstanding and moral I am. Look at what a great job I'm doing with raising my kids, right? Look at what Look at who I am. I, I rarely miss church. God, I'm a resume builder. Look at my resume. Friends, look, I'm a resume builder. I'm not like one of those bad people that you can't trust. I'm a good person. I think we're all fundamentally resume builders. Look at what uh, Paul gets, the way, the way that Paul gets at this in verse 27 is he uses this word that he loves to use. He says, where then is boasting? Right, what becomes of boasting? Boasting is his way of talking about that thing that we do when we build our resume and then we're proud of it. Then we boast in it. You know, uh, 
his, his narration of humanity in the first chapters of Romans, it's all here in this chapter. But he says in verse 21, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? All human beings, no matter what, all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And so we go about building our own glory, our own resume, our own things to boast about. And this is at the core of so much of what goes wrong in humanity. You take sinners, all of whom are trying to build our own resumes, trying to boast about ourselves, and then you put us in the, ask us to share a, a home or a country or a city, and we start boasting up against one another, right? If you, boasting is when we take our good things, the things that are, that, that are not bad in and of themselves, right? But if we elevate them to the level of what makes us better than others, it just, it fractures us, right? We, we become people who love our country so much, who boast so much in our national identity that we become nationalists. We become people who are prideful of our own national heritage at the expense of others. We view them as less than. Or we, we so boast in our own ethnic heritage, right, that we become, what, racist sometimes to people who come from different ethnic heritages. Or we take the, the money that we've been able to earn, right, our, the good things of our, of our uh, the, the prosperity God brings, and in greed we boast in it and start to look down on others. Or even religious people, right, we start to boast in our own goodness and our own values and our own righteousness, and we become self-righteous, looking down on others. And so boasting separates us from God, it separates us from one another. Where do you look to build your resume? What are you, where are you working to craft for yourself a righteousness? Some way of knowing that you're good and valuable to present to God and others. One of my favorite pictures of human resume building is in the movie The, Chari uh, the Chariots of Fire. It's a story of uh, some <clears throat> Olympic sprinters as they get ready for the Olympics. And one man, Harold Abrams, puts it this way, he's a 100-meter runner. And he says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? 10 lonely seconds. To not, to, not to run and see if I do well, but to justify my existence, to prove if I'm worthwhile as a human being. I read an interview with Sidney Pollack, uh, the movie maker. He died maybe three or four years ago. One thing about Pollock was that he kept making movies, even into uh, his old age, even as he was aging and dying. He continued to, to work. He continued to produce movies. And he sat down with, for an interview, uh, even in his old age, and he said this, every time I finish a picture, I feel I've earned my stay for another year or so. Right? Every time I make a movie, I feel like I've earned my right to be a person for another year or so. I feel like I've earned my belonging. I've justified my existence for another year. One thing that I, I, I think is so insightful about that quote is that it doesn't matter that he'd won Oscars before. It doesn't matter how successful he had been. But if he didn't keep it up, if he didn't keep producing, he felt like he hadn't justified his existence. And some of you are on that hamster wheel, right? Feeling like if I let up for a moment, if I stop working, if I stop performing, if I rest and relax, if I don't work and, and bust my tail to produce my resume, then I can't stand. I can't stand before God or before others. And so for Israel, what Paul gets at in the second half of our chapter here is that for Israel, God's chosen people, his people by grace, their keeping of the law, their keeping of Torah, they're being circumcised and worshiping God and doing all of the good things that God gave them to do had become their way of justifying themselves, 
It had become their way of looking at the Greeks and the Romans and the pagans all around them and saying that, no, no, when God intervenes, when God judges history, we're the good people, they're the bad people. Right? To put it in, in contemporary terms, if they, were, uh, if they were an American politician, they would say, we're going to be on the right side of history. Right? And all of, then all of the foolishness of our rivals will be shown up and they'll be judged, but we're going to be held in the right. And what Paul's saying here is, the, the gist of his argument is, no, no. No. No human being is going to be justified by their own efforts at resume building. None of you. All of, all of sin, all have fallen short of the glory of God. None of your resumes are going to qualify you at the end of the day. It takes something else. It takes what Paul calls here a righteousness from God by faith. Right? It takes what Luther, Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. Right? It's your resume is, is, is not going to stand up. You need the resume of another. You need the righteousness of another to come to you as a free gift that you receive by faith and let it cover you. Let it become your righteousness, your justification, the way that you get made right uh, with God. And this happens uh, in the person of Christ. You know, that's how, uh, when you think about the judgment of God, you think of that awful scene at the, in the Sistine Chapel, Christ judging people, some to glory, some down to hell itself. And you think, how can that image of judgment ever become good news? Well, it's because if you're in Christ, if you place your faith in Christ, judgment day becomes something that's no longer in your future, but something that's in your past. Right? That's what's going on at the cross in Paul's metaphor here. It's that the judgment of God, the court scene of God at which we all have to stand, goes from being this dreadful thing that you have to fear in your future to something that happened on the cross 2,000 years ago. That there on the cross, God was pouring out his judgment for sin on the person of a substitute. Somebody else took the punishment that was meant for you, that was meant for me, that was meant for sinners, that came to Christ. If you live fearing judgment, if you live constantly with a guilty conscience wondering how you could ever stand before God on that day, know that in Christ, if you're joined to him by faith, his judgment is your judgment. That your judgment day happened on a hill outside of Jerusalem on a cross. And that it's done. It's judged. It's paid for. The way that Paul puts it here is uh, this this word that you've probably never heard in any other context, that he's put forward as a propitiation. Propitiation. Uh, the, this is for the, the Greek word is hilasterion. It's the word that means the mercy seat of God, the seat on the top of the ark at the center of the temple where God met with his people, where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled so that God's presence could live with his people. Translators go different ways with it. Some translate it as propitiation, which is a tough word to say, but it essentially means a sacrifice that takes the punishment, right? That takes the punishment of our sin. Others translate it uh, as meeting place, right? That yes, it's a sacrifice, but it's more than that. That Jesus becomes the actual seat where God and man meet. He becomes the place where we're no longer separated by our guilt, but by his blood, we're, we're made one with God again were brought back and made innocent. You know, this is absolutely uh, the heart of the Christian message. 
this message that you, guilty and stained as you are, can be restored to God, that you can be justified, that you can be, you can be given not just, not just forgiveness, right? I think it's easy for us when we hear justification, it's easy for us to think, oh, that means forgiveness. But it's more than that. It's more than just being forgiven, right? If, if, you're, if you're in a courtroom and you're guilty, to, to be forgiven of your guilt is essentially to be told you're free to go, right? You're, I'm not going to punish you. You're free to go on your way. You've escaped punishment. Justification is more than that. It's not you're free to go. It's you're free to come. It's you're free to stay. You're free to have access to all that God made you for, all that God wants for you, communion with God himself. It's not you're forgiven, now get on your way. It's you're forgiven, now come close. You're forgiven, now be made right, be made a new person. It's not just a get out of jail free card. It's this entirely new identity. Uh, one biblical scholar, Fleming Rutledge, trans- she, uh, in her translation, Instead of justification, she translates it rectification, which is just another way of getting at that word, that it is justification. It is being made legally righteous. But it's more than that. It's being made right. It's being made new. It's being given this new identity that you're no longer who you were, but you're a new creation, a new person, righteous before God. You know, I saw uh, uh, an incredible quote. Uh, This was... um, an NPR story they did on a tattoo artist in Baltimore, uh, a man named Dave Cutlip. He was a tattoo artist, spent his, you know, this was his livelihood. He made his money by giving uh, men and women tattoos. And he decided to advertise that he would willingly and completely give free tattoo work to anyone who at a young age or, or really at any point in their life had, had had a marking put on them permanently as a message of hate or gang affiliation. Right, so imagine yourself, if you're a, an 18-year-old and you're caught up in an ideology, you're caught up in something sinful and foolish, and you go and get a, you know, a swastika put on your neck. And then imagine 20 years later, you come to Christ, you repent, you hate that part about your past. And yet every job interview, every person you meet, what do you walk into it with? This giant reminder of what you used to believe and who you used to be. He talked about one man who came before him and had white power written on both of his arms and was now a father of four and a Christian man who was stuck with this, too unable to afford the thousands of dollars that it would have cost to cover it or to remove it. And so he, this is what he said. He said, if, you've, if you want me to, I will cover your tattoos for free. This is, this, for him, he said, this is, some of these are two, $3,000 worth of work, but I'll do it for free. And he, start, he led this movement of recruiting other tattoo artists who were willing to do it for free. That is a beautiful picture of justification. Our sin marks us. Our sin, even all of us don't suffer the humiliation of carrying our sin written on our flesh in a way that everybody can see. But our sin marks us, it divides us. Our sin keeps us from ever feeling uh, the relief of our shame, like we can really move on in our lives. But God's grace doesn't just forgive us for having done it. It covers it. It gives us new marks by baptism, by the water going on the head, by being made new in Christ. We're given new marks of a new identity, made new, justified. I read an article uh, about Bernie Madoff. Remember him? He was the man who defrauded uh, thousands of people of their savings. Uh, it was a fascinating article. It was an article, he was a Jewish man, uh, and it was wrestling with the struggles within the Jewish community 
to cope with the fact that this notorious sinner was Jewish, right? A group of people who rightly uh, think of themselves often as ethically upstanding, morally upstanding, right? These are the people of God's covenant. And here was the, the worst of offenders, was one of their own. And there was an interview that the New York Times did with a local rabbi, uh, Rabbi Wolp. And this is what he says. They're asking the question, is it possible for Madoff to, to, to find forgiveness? Is it possible for him to start over? And here's what he says. He says, it is not possible for him to atone for all the damage he did. And I don't think that there is a punishment commensurate with the crime for the wreckage of lives that he's left behind. The only thing he could do for the rest of his life is to work for redemption that he would never receive. If that's true for him, if there's no hope for the worst of us, there's no hope for any of us. Right? If there's no hope for, for justification, for redemption, for new life, for the very, very worst of us, then there's no help for any of us. There has to be a way for us to cope with the judgment of God. We can't ignore it. We can't sweep it under the rug. We can't do what so many of us do and say, you know what, well, my God isn't a God of judgment. You know what, I like to think of a God who's accepting of all who would never do that. On that day, that's not enough. We need to be able to stand before God, tear up our own resume, and lift up the resume of Jesus and say his life, his death, is my only hope. It's my only hope. What does this mean for us practically in our lives? Just one thing I want us to look at is what Paul says in verse 27. What then becomes of our boasting? What becomes of our boasting? Paul, in other places, he loves this idea of boasting. Elsewhere, he says that I've come to boast only in the cross, only in Jesus. Right? I've come to a place where I recognize that all of my goodness, right, all of the pride that I felt in being an Israelite, all the pride that I felt in being an upstanding moral Pharisee, all of the pride that I felt in being a brilliant scholar, all of that is like filthy rags. Right? All of it. You notice what he says. It's all of my good stuff is like filthy rags. Not my sin, not, my, not the moments I'm most embarrassed of, not the moments of my deepest guilt and shame, but all of the moments of my, my greatest pride. All of the things that I've been most boastful about is like, is like a filthy rag. It's like nothing. You know, if, if you want to know whether you've begun to understand the Christian gospel, whether or not it's taken root in your life, have you started repenting of your goodness? Right? Even atheists will repent of their badness, right? Not now, not to God, right? They don't think he's there. But you don't have, there is nothing unique about being a Christian, about apologizing for the bad things that you've done, right? The whole world confesses when we do things wrong. We say we're sorry, we try to make amends, right? Everybody apologizes for the bad things. The uniqueness of the Christian gospel, you'll know it's taken root in your heart when you start repenting of your good things when you start repenting of the ways that you've tried to earn God's favor in your life, through your morality, through raising a good family, by keeping a spotless moral record, by being better than the people around you, by voting the right way, by thinking the right way, by, by spending your money the right way, when you start to not just repent of your badness, but to actually repent of your goodness and say, God, my resume building itself has been wrong. Right? Uh, Paul tells us that even the, the uh, you can do the right things for the wrong reasons and they become the wrong things. 
right? If, if your goodness is just an effort to earn God's approval, then it's sin, then it's wrong. Uh, the, the theologian John Gerstner put it this way. The main thing between you and God is not so much your sin. It's your damnable good works. It's your, it's your, it, nobody ultimately, nobody ultimately will go to hell, will face God's judgment because of any sin that was too bad for God, right? There's not a sin that's not coverable by the blood of the cross. Plenty of people will go believing they haven't sinned and don't need a savior, believing they were justified in their choices, that their resume was clean, that they have no need that their, that their damnable good works will keep them from ultimately faith, which is simply opening your hands and saying, God, I confess. I admit that not only my badness, not only my chasing a life apart from you, but even my resume building has come from this heart that desperately wants to be alone, that desperately wants to do it myself. God's justification, his making the world right, starts with us. It starts with us coming to him and saying, I've been wrong. God, make, make right this mess that I've made. If you've never asked God to do that, would you do it today? Would you ask God? Would you tear up your resume before him and ask for his perfect resume? If you have prayed that prayer, let's come to God and let's lay it down. All of us have a tendency to start working hard again. All of us have a tendency to try to work our way out of God's doghouse. Let's go to him again. Let's thank him for his grace, and let's ask him to, to help us trust in it. Let's pray.